First Peter chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Uh, that's why, hopefully, why, one of the reasons you've come is because you want to study together, you want to learn, you want to dive into God's Word that doesn't fade, never goes away, it doesn't change with passing winds or more data or more charts or more graphs. I think God's Spirit is intent on giving us a firm foundation here, and so that's going to be the hope. Um, I am uh, I'm grateful that uh, we have the hope of true things, of eternal things, uh, in a world that's uh, a little bit upside down. I don't know what many of you are doing. I know that in a normal course of, uh, a more normal course of life, July would be kind of a transition month. My guess is that people would be moving and traveling and going about. It's probably one of the biggest things that I miss personally is not being able to travel as a family or traveling very little. Also, just listening uh, to people and their stories of what they've done, that's always like an easy conversation starter. You know, I used to always just say, what have you been doing? You've been traveling? You've been going somewhere? And then sometimes people would say, oh, I was in Belgium and it was lovely and it was, you know, or they'd say, I saw my grandmother and that was a wonderful conversation starter and now I don't even know what to say to people when I see them. So, <laughs> you're sitting around a lot, like me, because that's what we're doing a good bit of. Um, and I miss that. I don't know what you're up to then, uh, hopefully staying safe and, uh, and faithful, uh, faithful to Jesus, which is obviously part of the case because that's why you're, you're here. I'm going to begin reading in the 12th verse of 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible with you, you could uh, look at that. I think some of these verses, at least four through 19, or 12 through 19, uh, the ones that we're going to look at mostly will be on the screen, so we could follow those. A uh, quick reminder where we are, <clears throat> this is nearing the end. In fact, I think in some ways you could look at this last section of chapter 4 is the last that Peter has to say about suffering. He spent a whole book looking at suffering and difficulty, how to approach the world when it didn't go as you planned, when the things that you thought would happen didn't happen, and the things that you feared would happen did. Uh, that's what he's been talking about. And he's now going to wrap it up and step back and give us a big picture perspective. What are some things to say about suffering? So I want to read these verses. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll study and, and listen and learn together. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's take a moment and, and pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that though you are beyond us, you're other, you're completely and utterly transcendent. You are devastating in your holiness, majestic. Your, your power is beyond our comprehension. Despite all of those things, you've invited us here. You call us your children. You delight us in us as a dad. And I pray that our relationship with you, our understanding, our longing to be known by you and to know you, that that would give us peace this morning, would help us. I thank you for this uh, gathering. 
in odd times and odd circumstances, for the moments that You've given us. I pray that as we long for things to be different, as we remember what it used to be like, I pray that You'd help us not miss these moments, this exact time. You've ordained it. We're here. We're Your people. Your Spirit is in our midst. And we ask God now for understanding and for hope. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter has said a lot about suffering. He's given them specific details on how to handle individual relationships, individual moments, individual difficulties. And it makes sense that it would be, you know, four chapters and that Peter's going to have to approach a big topic like difficulty and suffering from a lot of different angles. I don't know if you've ever been in the midst of suffering, and sometimes you're confused about what you even need. You don't even know. There's times when you think, all I want is to just be quiet And then other times you're mad and you just think, I can't believe no one wants to talk with me about this. There's times when what people say to you feels so trite and hallmarkish and cliched and you think, oh, just get get over it. Stop with these cliches. And then there's other times when you think to yourself, I wish someone would just tell me what's true, just the deepest things, the most true. You've probably felt that in your own suffering, in your own difficulty, let alone tried to be someone to help a person in their suffering. You ever felt the tension of that? Just begging God to give you the words to think, what do I say? What do I text? Do I say more or do I pull back? Do I get closer? Do I talk louder? Do I talk softer? Do they need to be reminded right now of what is true or do they just need to be encouraged? Is now the time for scolding because they're being whiny? Or are they, if you've ever tried to help someone, you know that this is a topic that needs to be tended to carefully. For four chapters or so, intermixed in the midst of all this teaching, Peter has done all of it. Now he leaves at the end of the fourth chapter by pulling back from the situation, and I think his longing is for those who are in the midst of suffering to not lose, and here's a little phrase that you can can take, and I think it makes sense to me anyway. He's saying to them, in the midst of all of your suffering and difficulty, don't miss the forest for the trees. You've heard this phrase before, don't miss the forest for the trees. Sometimes, one of my favorite little hobbies are things to wonder about. Maybe it's not a hobby because I don't actually track them down too often, but I wonder where phrases came from. Like, who was the first person who said, you know what the problem is here? (laughs) You forgot there was a forest in the middle of all these trees. I don't know if that was a real moment. It's probably an artistic, probably a piece of literature somewhere. Uh, If you know, you could email the church later or something. But what Peter, I think, wants to say to them is, now listen, If there's one thing that suffering and persecution is, it's disorienting. It's exhausting. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. You're down in the moment. And there are times when we should step back. And he's going to dare. He's going to dare to say the biggest things, the most cliche things. Sometimes Christians get a bad rap as being those who, in the midst of suffering, rush to something that could be cross-stitched as the only thing we can say. I've felt the pains of that before. Amidst one of the most difficult times in my life, someone with an overly cheery face from our church putting their hand on my shoulder, it's okay, and then quoting like the cheeriest, joyful Bible verse of all time, and kind of in a condescending sort of way, like, why don't you just cheer up because you know what's true? And I wanted to punch them in their hallmark face right in the moment. And I know that sometimes that can be a, that can be a temptation, and we need to avoid being trite in the midst of real suffering and sorrow. However, that 
should not keep us from sometimes saying what is true. Sometimes people in the midst of their suffering really are whining, and sometimes they really are fearful when they shouldn't be fearful. And sometimes they really do say things that is not true about who God is or who they are. And we need to step back sometimes and say, let's not get lost here. I'm going to remind you of the biggest things. And so Peter, in this passage we just read, I think he says a couple of the biggest things possible, and there's going to be a bunch of cascading caveats underneath them. Some of them descriptive, some of them pullbacks, but at least the two biggest things that he reminds them, he's dealt with all of these situations, slaves and masters, emperors who kill Christians, husbands and wives, believing and unbelieving, difficulty with food and money and friends and interpersonal turmoil, turmoil over sin. I was trying to say torment and turmoil. I came up with turmoil. He's dealt with all of these things, but now he's going to say these two big things at the end of it. But just remember, suffering is inevitable, so stop whining about that or stop being surprised is the phrase he's going to use. Suffering is inevitable, but God is trustworthy and He's with you. Difficulty will come, but God's Spirit is with you in the midst of it. It's these two big truths that He's going to leave them with, this church that is suffering. And so I want to look at them. We'll spend a lot of time on the first part. What does he mean by suffering will be inevitable? Difficulty will come. This world is work. It's hardship. What does he mean by that? Some cascading caveats and lists underneath it. And then finally, how do we entrust ourselves to God? And what does that mean? So first, I'm just going to start with the idea that we all need to reckon with. One of the ways we grow wise in the world is to begin to be more quick to recognize and receive suffering when it comes. We're not so shocked all the time. One of the most difficult things when we find ourselves disoriented in trouble is it can take a while to snap ourselves out of it and just accept the situation as it is. I was terrible at this at the beginning of the pandemic. I just didn't want to plan, didn't want to talk about it. Even now, I have the worst of all masks, and I'm just like, what a designer mask! This is going to be over soon. What are you talking about? This is crazy. This is crazy. This is crazy. And there can be a sense in which what we do is we get stuck being constantly surprised. And Peter says, here's going to be one of the first steps to wisdom. You're following Jesus on His path in this world while difficulty will come. Remember that. Don't be surprised, he says, as though some strange thing is happening to you. It's okay to be surprised or to express disorientation at first, but it is not okay to somehow believe a false narrative about your existence in your life, especially in following Jesus, that what is normal and what should happen is that everything goes swell for all of your days. There's one of the people in our home, and between the adults and the children and the dog, I'll let you determine which of those categories they're in. One of the people in our home is constantly surprised that touching hot things burns them. Like, they cannot learn this lesson. It's an ongoing joke. And when they're, you know, one years old and it happens for the first time, they're shocked. There's a lot that's shocking about the world. Watching a little child discover the world, there's a ton of moments to say, I'm surprised. Are for real? We have organs and body parts that can explode inside of us and kill us, and then if we remove them, it's fine and nothing bad happens? Wow! There's a lot surprising about the world, 
And so the first time a one-year-old or a two-year-old touches into something that's been in the oven or on top of a stovetop and says, ow, my fingers are burning, this hurts, there can be a level of surprise, and you treat it like that. But the second and the third and the tenth and the twentieth time that someone carelessly or recklessly puts their hand near something hot and gets burned, eventually we say to them, is you should grow more wise than this. Don't be surprised when you put your hand in the oven that your finger gets burned as though that was something strange happening to you. And that's the essence of what Peter is saying to them, that one of the things that should happen in the midst of living in this world is we grow, grow in our knowledge of who am I and who are these people around me and what is this sin fallen place that we live in that eventually we should be able to see these things coming and put aside some of the expectation from our soul, some of the thing that wants to creep up in us that says basically something like this, I don't deserve this. This is a total shock. It's out of nowhere. Something strange and surprise is happening. This is a caveat. This is not real life. I think C.S. Lewis once said, one of the steps to wisdom or to understanding what this place is like is to realize eventually you need to understand that the obstacles in your life, the difficulties in life, the challenges in your life are not a diversion from your real life somewhere else, but they are the life that God has for you. Don't be surprised when things are hard or difficult, as though something strange is happening to you. When I was in high school, a friend of mine, he loved like inspiration and goals, and he wanted to really make something I say he wanted to make something of his life like that's, uh, like that's something weird. And he wanted to succeed and stuff. But he bought all these VHS tapes of a motivational speaker kind of person. And I loved this guy at the time. And so we'd spend time in the summers in the midst of playing basketball and dunk contests and baseball and all the stuff we did. We'd, we'd watch these VHS tapes and take notes and think about the future and stuff. And it's interesting. He often taught from Scripture, but he was doing it in a palatable way for business people. And he said that one of the things you have to learn about life is to learn the setup. And he has said in this funny kind of way, you don't have to like it. Like, so many people come to me and they're mad about the setup. I didn't say you had to like it. And more than that, why are you talking to me? I wasn't there when they made the rules. That's what he used to say. But his point was this. He said, you learn the setup and one of the most basic setups of life is that there are seasons, there are cycles, there are things that come and go inevitably in the world. And so he says, if you're in the midst of a harvest in the fall and things are going wonderful, and in my mind I'm thinking fall, oh yeah, if you're sitting out by the fire and you're just roasting the marshmallows and you're outside in the leaves and everything's wonderful. What he says is, is that none of us, as you grow older, you shouldn't be shocked. How many times after fall does winter come? Every time for recorded history. It always comes. And I remember listening to these tapes with this guy, and he just said that one of the ways you'll grow in maturity is that you'll learn to anticipate and endure the winters because they always come. And this is what Peter is saying to those who are following Jesus. Listen, if you follow the path that a crucified Savior walked, you will face suffering and persecution. It always comes. Don't be surprised. 
So one of the ways that we remember that suffering is inevitable is if we just remember the Master. We remember Jesus, who said that no, stu- no student or no servant is greater than his Master. John 15, verse 20, in the John, John 15 passage, he's saying, you're my friends. Remember, this is a good passage. John 15, he's saying to them, be encouraged. I love you. You're mine. You're with me. We're together. We're buds. We're connected. And then he says, remember the word that I said to you, though, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. And I think the implication here is that those who are of God will follow the word of God, but everyone else will persecute. Jesus not only walked this path and demonstrated it, but taught it explicitly. And so Peter says, every once in a while, In the midst of dealing with the specifics of your suffering, step back and remember the greatest truths about who you are. Who am I following? And if all is lost here, if all seems difficult here, do I have hope for my future? That's the the question that he's dealing with. And I think in a very simple degree, at a human level and a spiritual level, an awareness, a preparation will curb anxiety about this world. We can prepare because it always comes. It's like your first day of school when you went off to kindergarten and maybe your parents, if they loved you, or if they, you know, before you got out of the car or something, they're like, okay, now you're going to go down the hall. There's going to be a lot of people there. It's going to sound crazy and be really, really loud, but you look for your teacher, and then you do this, and then sometimes someone might not share their snack at the recess. Like, you prepare people for the difficulties of life to come. This is what love looks like. Why? Because if you know what's coming, it can help to curb some of the anxiety in your soul. And so Peter tells those who are suffering currently as well as those who would help others, He says, prepare well, prepare well for a difficult world. Say to someone who is succeeding, the book of Ecclesiastes near the end of it has a wonderful phrase where it says that we should should rejoice in a time of plenty. So we shouldn't apologize or feel guilty when things are going well. But, he says, but the final judgment is in God's hand and we don't control our days. We need to help one another prepare well for difficult times, even if things are going great. Even if things are going great. We remember Jesus. It's one of the ways that we prepare. He has a kind of paradoxical way that this should make us happy, though. He says, we remember what Jesus said and how He walked, which tells us that suffering will come. But we should also not only remember that it's going to come, we should rejoice when it does. As long as we are suffering for Christ's sake, we we should rejoice when it does come because it means we're on the right path. Here's, I think, what was tempting for early Christians. Here's what they thought. They thought, well, when Jesus was here, He was faithful to God and proclaimed the truth out loud and lived uncompromisingly in a righteous way, and they hated Him and killed Him. Maybe I can follow that Jesus and obey His Word and say what He said, and they will celebrate Me. And Peter is telling them, No, 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 that's not going to be the case. In fact, if you are attempting to live a Christian life and you find nothing but acclaim and reception in the world, that is a sign of danger. Do you see the thinking here? Do you see the logic here? Jesus was crucified for what He thought and taught and how He lived. 
Christians in our world, if we are celebrated and given platforms and everyone says this is nothing but loveliness every time you talk, this should be a sign potentially of danger more than of blessing. Peter says to them, if you're walking the path that Jesus walked, you'll receive what Jesus received on the path, and when you receive it, it's evidence that you're on the right path. That's the line of thinking. He says to them, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. As you're sharing what He suffered, you can rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Why? Because you'll know that you're united with Him. If you're united with Him in His suffering, in His rejection, in His persecution, and ultimately in His death, then you have evidence and hope that you'll be united with Him when He is glorified and you receive new life. One of the great temptations of a spiritual life, of a respectable religious life, is to exchange just enough so that you get all of the benefits of Jesus while carefully avoiding all of the costs. This is one of the great lies that can often be tempting to believe in Christianity. And Peter says that's just not the way that it's going to work. He echoes here the teaching, I believe, of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, when considering his life, all that he stepped away from, the way that he was beaten, the way that he was pressed as a former Pharisee, he considers that former way of life, and he has this to say, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then verse 10, Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives this tension, this contrast, this twofold purpose of following Jesus. He says in verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. That's what everybody wants. We want to escape death. We want a solution to the sin that works deep in our souls. We want hope. And he says, I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection, comma, and this is what Paul wants, and he wants to share in his sufferings. And that's the point where anyone who is in it just for a good time anyone who's in it just for the respectability and just for the benefits, anyone who's making a cost-benefit analysis and taking hold of their own life as though they were the arbiter, if they're still trying to be God over their own destiny and not giving up with full surrender, this is where they pause and have a conversation with Paul. This is where they negotiate. They say, yes, I also want to know him in the power of his resurrection, but what about this sharing with his sufferings part? I just don't get it. But Paul goes on because he knows the key to the power of the resurrection is to die with Christ in his death. So he wants to share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It turns out that the only people who can be resurrected are those who are dead. It's why in coming to Jesus we are called to give up our life, to lose our life so that we would gain it. And if you attempt to keep your life as a supplemental life tacked onto the life that Jesus gives you, then you will have neither. So Peter is telling them, I know it's hard. You're being reviled. He says in here, you're being insulted. Many of you, they have faced public beatings, some of them death, 
Famously, nearly all of the early apostles of the church were martyred publicly for their faith in Christ. He knows these things are facing them. But he says to them, take this as evidence that Christ is in you and for you and with you because he suffered in the same way. And it is this fact that you die with him that will give you hope that you will also be resurrected like him. Now, there's one thing that I want to mention here in the midst of suffering, because that word is very generic and very broad. In fact, this morning when I say to you, have you ever suffered, my guess is that your experience would be as vast as the ocean in in diversity and difference. And when we read a passage like this, because the Word of God is for us, we could read it and we could be very tempted to apply this directly to us and say, yes, the fiery trial. And we all have different levels. These are very subjective things. And in a moment, when I talk about suffering, I'm not going to try to downplay and make it sound like, well, you have to have a, like I'm gatekeeping real suffering. That's not the point here. But I do want to say that Peter mentions the fact that there are different kinds of suffering and we need to be aware of it. I think there's different kinds of suffering in scale. These people are facing certain death, loss of home, loss of family, loss of business, loss of reputation. It's different than suffering loss of, man, I was going to talk about the masks. I just don't want to go there. Loss of breathing comfort. That's a a kind of trial. It's the thing I whine about. It's different than having to teach to a camera rather than being in person. There's suffering that can happen physically, suffering that can happen mentally, emotionally. So suffering comes in this world, and Peter's being very careful here. He does not want to give carte blanche to any reader, any in the church, to interpret any difficulty in their life as sanctioned by God and proof that they're on the right path. He recognizes, no, 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 sometimes suffering in this world is your own fault. So let's talk about this. I think there's at least four reasons for suffering that I could point out. In a difference, and that's in addition to, there's probably different degrees underneath each of one of these things. This could be hours-long conversation. You can go to a psychologist or a counselor for this. But If you had a question and just say, like, well, I am suffering, one of the things you could do is you can step back and challenge the assumptions about the situation that you're in. Many of us will give ourselves the benefit of the doubt that anytime we're in difficulty, it's because we're on God's team and His side, and it's fine. But Peter just wants to point out, it's possible. You're blessed insofar as you suffer for Christ's sake, but it's possible. He says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. In the verse before that, I think the assumption then is you might have a little shame if you suffer in a different way, namely is this. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer. Well, that makes sense. There's real consequence to our sin in the world, and there are some people who have murdered and are suffering the consequences. And I think Peter wants to tell them, don't get this confused. God did not ordain your murdering, your suffering. You know, this is a, this is a just suffering in a different kind of way. But now the list starts to get a little bit interesting. Also, not because of your theft. Okay, don't be a murderer and don't be a thief. This means, as far as I can tell right from the start, this means that we can suffer in this life because of our stupidity and because of our sin. Murdering and thieving, we understand. Then he goes very general, and you think he might be done with the list, and say, oh, or as an evildoer, okay, that makes sense, just any category of evil. And then he tags on this at the end, or as a meddler which is just so interesting that he throws this in there. Or as a meddler. I don't know if you know this, but contentious people, 
people who stir things up, people who dive into fights because they love to fight, people who have endless desire to argue and to put down, the Bible does not treat them well. He uses this word, at least the ESV translation says meddler. They watched a lot of Scooby-Doo when they were kids. Anybody ever watch Scooby-Doo? Isn't that what he says? I would have got away with it too. It wasn't for you and the meddling kids, you know, that, that phrase. In, this, in that case, the meddlers were the heroes. In this case, the meddlers are not the heroes. And I just want to point out that division and divisiveness and contentiousness in the Christian and in the church is something to be avoided, and it can bring about unnecessary, unjust suffering. That's what Peter says. I don't know if he has someone in mind when he's writing this, if he's thinking about the person who's suffering right now and it's really just because they were a jerk. He doesn't want to give them a pass. He doesn't want to throw them a bone. Here's the funny thing about meddling and about gossip and about a contentious spirit and about endless conversations about things that don't matter. Avoid, avoid babbling talk, Scripture tells us. The Bible points out the destructive nature of these kind of things far more than we do, I think, as respectable adults. Somehow, what was very obvious on a playground in a, as a grammar kid, grammar school kid, or a middle school kid, or a high school kid, is rarely talked about in adult circles. I'm thinking about a specific word. When I was in, say, fourth and fifth grade, if you gave a group of boys 10 minutes of unattended time, one of them would instigate something. You ever hear someone called that? You would get in trouble for being the instigator, right? The instigator. That was the person who was highest on the list. You were the instigator of something. And what happens is, is that somehow we think that that spirit of the soul just dies in us as we get older, and the reality is it does not. There are some people who just love to instigate. They like the fight. And Peter says, if you're the kind of person who welcomes and beckons suffering into your life needlessly, I'm not talking to you. Don't suffer like that. So I'm just going to summarize these, I think, of four reasons why you could be suffering. And Peter's encouraging them. I think, why does he include this caveat? I think he's encouraging them to step back and to not lose the forest for the trees and to say, why am I suffering? What is happening here? To check themselves whether or not they're in Christ's path. Here's, some four, here's four reasons why you may potentially be suffering in this world. All of them have different subcategories, but here's four that I can think of. One, the best reason possible, you're suffering for the sake of Jesus. You're suffering for Christianity, for your faith, for truth. This is the reality that there's spiritual warfare in the world. That where truth is proclaimed, where the Spirit of Christ moves, there's a spirit of an enemy at work constantly. This is real. It happens. This is what is happening here in 1 Peter for those who are suffering for Christ's sake. That is possible, but I think it needs to be said out loud then. You know what the consequence of that means? That means that we live in a world and we're following a Jesus and we have a faith that tells us you can do everything right and lose. I don't know if you're a justice-fairness kind of person who thinks the whole world needs to make sense and be put together the right way, but that will drive you crazy to think about. The whole book of Job is in the Bible to tell us, to help us to stop thinking that somehow if I just do everything right, everyone will love me and things will go well. 
That is not the case. You can suffer for the sake of Christ. You can suffer by doing what is right. You can suffer by saying what is true. You can suffer by being faithful when it would have been easier to be faithless. So that's one reason. You may be suffering for the sake of Christ. Two, though, and this is very obvious, in this world you may be suffering because of your own sin. You murdered someone. Stop it, you murderer. So the first thing to do when you have to figure out your own suffering is to figure out the source, and sometimes the source is your own sin. However, a third category, you can also suffer because of the sin of others. You may be suffering because of the sin of others, and this does happen as well. Sometimes the thing to do is not to confess your own shortcomings, but to really point out and say, no, I've been. There are times when you can truly be a victim. Now, again, this, this, this would take a long time to unpack because victim is a, is a weighty term, and how do we use that, and what does it look like in real life? But I think Scripture teaches us that we really can be at times, the victim of the sin of others. You can suffer for that reason. And then finally, and even more confusing, I think, if you're the kind of person who says, it doesn't make any sense, why would, why would God leave us here in a world where we're doing everything right, but we're suffering for it? In addition to that, there's a category of suffering that I would just call is due to the world. This is just a fallen place. This is the kind of place where when you plant something in the ground, evil weeds come out of nowhere and want to kill it. This is a kind of place that when you plant something in the ground, bugs will show up. You didn't invite them. They didn't ask you. They just eat your stuff. This is the kind of world where you can be playing with your children and having a vacation at the beach and an aneurysm stops you in your tracks. This is a crazy place. And sometimes you suffer simply because we're in a fallen, upside-down, sideways world that is yearning itself, groaning for the second coming of Christ to be made right. And if it drives you crazy that you can do everything right and still lose, it's even more disorienting when there's no one to blame and nothing to fix. If you're a planning, fixing, blaming, solving justice kind of person, the most difficult circumstances are probably those times when you look around and you realize not only is there no one to blame, but this is no one's fault and there's nothing we can do. It's just the world we're in. These are all reasons that we may be suffering. Peter's solution, though, for all of these is similar. He says, at the end of all things, we should realize that the suffering that comes to us in this world for those who are in Christ is ultimately a purifying fire rather than a consuming one. It's why he says, time of judgment begins in the household of God. The burning fire of God's judgment, His truth, His righteousness, His holiness has begun to burn first in Christians inside the people of God. And for us who have the Spirit of God and are united with Jesus, the grave will prove to be what it was for Jesus Himself, a mere stopping point, a bus stop on a path to new life. The fire that comes, the suffering of this world, insofar as you suffer for Christ, will prove to be a refining fire, the kind of fire that a careful blacksmith throws things through so that he can have more useful, more beautiful things on the other end. However, Peter says, you ought not to fear for yourself, but fear for those for whom that same fire will be a consuming one. 
There are those who suffer in this world and have no hope. They suffer not for the sake of Christ, but for the sake of their damnation. This is one of the perspectives that you can have in the gospel of God. One of the most cliche things that could possibly be said is also the most true and the most helpful when you want to make sense of your life and have hope. He says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. God is faithful to you in the largest sense possible. It doesn't mean be reckless and be stupid. We've already covered this. But in the most true sense possible, you are invincible in God's hand. You're invincible. There's not a single hour of your life that can be taken from you, nor one added added by your anxiety. You are His, and the spirit of suffering for those who are facing what they're facing is essentially this. Well, what's the worst that can happen? All they can do is kill me. All I can do is die, which for us is merely new life. Polycarp, early influential elder-type figure in the early church. He was famously brought publicly before a council and accused of blasphemy and told to recant of his faith in Jesus. And he points to what Peter is talking about here, the faithfulness of the Creator in order to give him hope. Polycarp is recorded as replying in the face of his potential persecution and death When told to recant, he says, 86 years I have served him, I've served Jesus, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And with that certainty, Polycarp essentially says to those who have required of him either his faith or his life, he essentially says to them, you can take nothing from me because all I can do here in your midst is die. Polycarp was then tied to a stake and martyred. I bring up that grotesque, horrible kind of suffering because I'm reminded as I read a passage of Scripture like this how tempting it would be for us in a Western world in our day and age to apply this very personally, very here and now, to make it only about, I'm not discounting, there's real suffering that happens emotionally and relationally and physically. I know that people are getting really sick in our world right now. It is a huge bummer to wear these. Like, there's some subjective suffering. But I just want to be brought back again to remember that the people that Peter was writing to had lost their livelihoods, had run from their homes, had watched their friends and family members beaten, were publicly shamed and insulted. Many of them would be put to death for the sake of Christ. And it's that kind of suffering and that kind of persecution that is not foreign and far off and way back there, but is ongoing and existing still here in our world. And so as we pray, I didn't want to end reading a passage like this, praying for us and saying, so God, you know, help us because the Zoom calls are really spotty. Or God help us, I mean, even in the sincere things that we have, there's real suffering that we have, but I didn't want to miss the fact this passage is about martyrdom. And here and now, this very Lord's Day, across the world, there are billions of people who, because of persecution or hardness of heart, 
or aggressiveness of governments have no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some 40% of the world is considered to be unreached as we speak. In that portion of the world, there are vast swaths of underground church where the gospel has taken root, but those who trust Christ face constant danger and toil. There are people who this very day will risk themselves to quietly sing. There are people who this very day will travel perilous paths to receive some portion of the Word of God so that they can study and know Christ deeper. There are places today where people will be silently stolen from their homes, never to be heard from again for the sake of Christ. There are places this very day, this Lord's day, where gatherings of Christians will be interrupted by violence and threat of death. There are organizations like Voice of the Martyrs, projects like the Joshua Project, that recount and consistently press forward the message of the persecuted church in our world right now. And in addition to praying for our suffering, I want to pray for the persecuted church. I want to pray that right now, where tempted, those Christians who trust God but are facing life and death, that they would entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In my late teens and early 20s, I spent many years in an organization that dedicated itself to praying for and scheming and creatively finding ways to reach people in unreached people groups. It was an organization that just wanted Jesus to be named in difficult places. And I spent a number of years with this organization. We traveled and took interesting but calculated risks. I remember on one such trip, I'd spent days traveling through a countryside in a way that I could have very much complained about. It smelled horrible, and it was uncomfortable, and I barely slept, and I hated the food. And yet one evening, late, late, late in the night, we had arranged to meet a representative from a portion of an underground church who had come cross-country to receive from us the materials that we brought. And in a short little, probably less than 10-minute window, I interact with one of the most joyful, humble, tears-in-his-eyes men that I'd ever met. They wouldn't tell us, he wouldn't tell us his name. Through translator, we discovered that he had not been home in his hometown or with his family for nine years. He had spent many of those nine years on the run, sometimes in and out of jail. And yet he was there joyfully seeking Scripture, joyfully seeking the betterment of his church, of the people who were being persecuted. This man offers to pray for us who are there. And I remember thinking, wow, my travels and my lack of sleep and my discomfort is less. It was real suffering compared to probably what I could have been experiencing. But in a moment, I was moved to think and to want to pray and to care for people and places 
of persecution. And so I want to take a second this morning, and I wonder if you wouldn't just pray with me. Now, I know and I hope that there are ways that the Spirit of God is applying this to your life, and I hope that you go from here and you think, how can I handle suffering better? But for now, as we close, I want to pray for the persecuted church around the world and ask for God's kindness on them as they suffer. So let's pray. Father, I pray for steadfastness in those Christians who have to worship quietly, steadfastness in those churches, those brothers and sisters in Christ whose souls are tempted, perhaps, tempted toward freedom, tempted toward safety, tempted toward rejection because of fear for their lives. God, I pray that You would keep them you would care for them. I pray that the joy of being united with Christ, of being found worthy of sharing in His sufferings, I pray that that would carry them through. God, we ask for the the joy, for the safety, for the life of underground churches across the world. God, I pray for those who this very day are being targeted, insulted, facing danger. God, we pray for their protection. God, I pray for families who discover that a loved one or someone in their midst has come to know Christ. I pray, God, that you would soften rather than harden their hearts. I pray for many, many, many workers to be sent into the harvest field. We pray for breakthroughs, creativity, ways for truth and for preaching and for evangelism to reach hardened difficult to reach places. I pray, God, for spiritual warfare, for victory. Spirit of God, go wage war in the name of Christ. I pray that you'd pull down idols and false systems of belief, things that keep people from knowing you and loving you. God, I ask for a deepened communion with you that when things can't be public, that there would be a kind of private worship that is explosive and dear. So God, help us to keep in mind these places, to pray for them often, to support and to send, and to desire to see Jesus made known in all of the world. So God, we commit ourselves to you. We pray that this would be the, the good that we continue to do. Help us to not be threatened or alarmed or froze by the sufferings of our life. We want to continue entrusting ourselves to you. We need your help with that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.